Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you, Lord God. Had it not been your grace upon us, we would not have even seen this side. We would not have seen this day. Beyond all that, Lord God, we would not have been found in the land, not just of the living, but of the eternal living, O Lord God. Father, how great is your grace towards us, Lord God. And even as you have gathered your saints to yourself today, your sons and daughters to yourselves today, Lord God, Father, I pray that you will speak. You will hide me behind the cross. And your word will enlighten our hearts once again in the name of Jesus. We thank you, blessed Father, once again, for you are God who loves us and who has lavished your grace upon us. And you have caused your face to shine upon us that has taken away the sin, the shame of the sin, O Lord God. Father, we bless your holy name. We bless you, Lord God. Father, we submit our hearts before you. May our meditations be pleasing in your sight in the name of Jesus. May our words that flow out of those meditations bless your holy name. In Jesus' mighty name, we have asked and we have prayed. Amen, amen and amen. Let's be seated. Greet your neighbor once again. Tell him, you are in the house of your father. Amen. God bless you all. I want us to look at something. Before that, sister, can I have those slides, please? Yes, let's wait there for some time. I just want us to look at, they say David was a New Testament saint in all Old Testament times because of the way his heart was towards God. And this New Testament saint, if you see his, a timeline of his proclamations from 1011, 1014 I think the text is not a little clear over there, but if you see that's a small timeline that is from 1014 downwards to 1011. Uh, now, we are not very exact of the times, but let's look at his proclamations. In Psalm 13, verse 5, when he's fleeing from Saul, he's saying, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Further down, when he's being captured by the Philistines in Kelia or Keila, he's saying in Psalm 56, verse 13, You have delivered my soul from death. And then in Psalm 25, verse 5, when he's on the verge of his deliverance, he tells God, You are the God of my salvation. Fast forward. Next slide, sister. You can read those verses from the slide itself, it is fine. Next slide, his proclamation changes over a period of time. In, let's look at Psalm 106, verse 4. When the ark was being removed, when the ark was being moved from the house of Obededam, Psalm 106, verse 4, he's crying out, God, visit me with your salvation. Psalm 106, verse 4. And then, when the ark is brought into the temple, 
That time, David is saying, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Now, fast forward another 10 years down the line. This proclamation has weakened to a plea. He's saying, the one who was joyfully rejoicing and saying, talk about his salvation every day. This is a God who has delivered me from the hand of Saul. This is the God who has done this for me. He has saved me. He has delivered me of all my troubles. Now, 10 years down the line, he's saying, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. That proclamation now weakened to a plea. A man who was so excited, who was running after God, who was trusting in his salvation, who knew the joy of his deliverance, ready to proclaim it everywhere he went, lost his team somewhere. Lost his team somewhere. How was his joy depleted? And from there, we also have hope. Amen? Tell your neighbor you have hope. Do I need a restoration of joy? Am I running after God in response to how His goodness is running after me? We sang that song, right? Two weeks back. Your goodness is running after me. Am I, am I running after God the same way His goodness is running after me? Or are there joy killers? Are there joy depleters that seem to steer me away from the joy of salvation? Today we are going to look at the topic of joy restored. By God's grace, it shall be a part series. And we are looking at two aspects today, the chasm and the challenge. The chasm and the challenge. And uh, Pastor, can you pass the mic? Yes, okay. Let's open our Bibles. Now we will not look at the slides. Let's open our Bibles because we are going to read a passage. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel 11. And we will read from 1 to 17. Derek, if you are there, brother, you can start. 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 17. First we will go. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David, and said, I am with child. Then David said to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. 
But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house and all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in the tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of the lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then, David's, then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him, that he may be struck down and die. So it was, while Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew they were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Let's pause there and let's go further down to verses 26 and 27 of 2 Samuel chapter 11. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Right. Let's also look at 2 Samuel chapter 12. Verses 1 to 13, I will ask Brother Joseph to read. 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 to 13. Let's pay attention to God's word. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in the city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little owl lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup. And he lay in his bosom. And it, it was like a daughter to, to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flocks and from his own herd to prepare one, one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's, uh, uh, David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he said, restore he shall restore four, fourfold for the lamb, because he, di he did the, the things and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man, Th thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the, lamb, the, the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wife into your keeping. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that has been too little, 
I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? To do evil in, in his sight. To do evil in his sight, you have killed Uriah. The Hethite was the sword. You, you have taken his wife to, to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword, the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah. The Hethite to, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbors. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you, for you did it secretly, but I will do these things before all Israel, before the sun. So David said, said to Nathan, I have sinned against God. David said, I have sinned against the Lord, not because of the fear of the judgment of the Lord, but because of his inward conviction. Now you can see his inward conviction in Psalm 51. Let's all rise up and read Psalm 51, verses 4 to 13. Psalm 51, let's all read together the blessed word of the Lord. Psalm 51, verses 4 to 13. Are we there? If you are there, say hallelujah. hallelujah. Amen. Let's go. One to go. Verse 4. Against you and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Amen. That shall be yours and my portion in the name of Jesus. Let's be seated. You see, from the prayer of David, we understand what are the joy killers or joy depleters. Joy is depleted in the chasm of ignorance. Next slide, my sister. Joy is depleted in the chasm of ignorance. If you see, what did David say against you? You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, you see the transformation over there. David did not know that he was offending man. He was not even aware or he did not have any guilt of having killed Uriah. From that point, he's saying, 
Lord, it is not against Uriah. It's not against Bathsheba that I have sinned. It is against you. It is against you. Before we look at how joy is rest restored, let's look at how joy is destroyed. How is it challenged? And if you notice, one of the primary things that the devil comes against, the chief target that the devil tries to take away from a believer is the joy. That which he wants to kill, to steal, to destroy. If you remember Job, what did he say? In Job 2 verses 4 to 5, we don't need to go there, I will read. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. He will surely tell God, God, you're not good. You're giving me trouble. That is the intention of the devil, for us to not have the joy of God's deliverance in our lives. So how does he deplete it? Or how does it get depleted in the life of a believer, in the life of a Christian? Joy is depleted in the chasm of ignorance. What is a chasm? It's a deep fissure. If you see that image over there, it's like a big crack, a deep and narrow passage, especially on the earth's surface, a deep crack in the heart of a believer that sucks away the joy of salvation. Now that crack, that crack was not sin. It was the ignorance of sin. The ignorance of sin. From thinking that he was not sinning against Uriah to the conviction that he was sinning against God. You see the reason for his ignorance over there. When you look at Psalm 51 verse 10, the first part, he prays a prayer over there. Lord, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Which means to say, Lord, my spirit was not steadfast before. It was not alert. It was not upright before. It has wavered away. Tell your neighbor, don't waver into sleep. No sleeping allowed today. Tell him. Tell her, no sleeping allowed today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Having a wavering spirit instead of a steadfast spirit or moving from a spiritual state of uprightness into a state of deceitfulness. You see how David was acting deceitfully when you looked at 2 Samuel 11. Right? From from a man who was so alert, he was going into sinning. When his spirit became dormant, or when his spirit became wavering, you can see three indicators there. How his spirit became wavering, or how his spirit became dormant. Let's move to the next slide. There is a chasm of ignorance, and it is characterized by three things. And it is sometimes a vicious cycle. One leads to the other to the other. And it is characterized by carelessness. 
carelessness. If you look at 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, what happened? When there was a season of kings going to war, the Bible says, David remained back and sent Joab. Now, of course, David had a powerful army. Joab was a, he had 30 valiant men and many more, right? So David, if he had stayed back, we would have said, it's okay. He has a great army, right? But look at the man. The man had a steadfast spirit before. If you look at 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel 5, few chapters back, 2 Samuel 5, 23, when David was fighting against the Philistines, David usually used to have dialogues with God. God, shall I go and attack them like this? 523 to 29, you can even leave that later. David would ask God for battle strategies and God would reveal it to him. He will say, God, shall I go and attack them like this? God will say, go. The next time he goes, God will say, don't go like this, David. Go around and attack them. And when you see the trees are shaking, remember, I have given them to you. God and David had a dialogue of every circumstance. But then, when it came to this battle, there was not even an iota of asking. He just exercised his will before even waiting on God. Do we find ourselves there sometimes? That is a sign of a careless spirit. A careless spiritual state. There are times that we would be seeking God earnestly even for our next meal, but then there are times that we just take it for granted. Ah, this one, it will come, no problem. Now, I don't mind if it is a confidence of faith. God appreciates it. God looks for it. But if it is a confidence of our own, then it is a dangerous place to be in because it leads to the next thing, the door of complacence. The chasm of ignorance is characterized not just by carelessness, but also by complacency. Look at God's charge that God brings against David. 2 Samuel 12, verses 7 and 8, God brings a charge against David. 2 Samuel 12, 7 and 8. I anointed you king over Israel. I'm reading a little ahead. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if, had, if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. You see David's ignorance there. There was an ignorance of his position. God is telling David, David, I called you. I chose you. I anointed you. Just like how he has called you and I. Unless he had called you and I, we would not have known him. Yes or no? And here, David had an ignorance of who he was. And then he says, I gave you much more. There was an abundance of provision 
Now, remember, in the place of calling, there is a place of provision that God gives. I'm not talking about the wives that God gave was a provision for David to do exercise his pleasures. No, there was a calling that God had placed upon the life of David, knowing his heart that he would be able to lead Israel. God has called you and I to declare his marvelous light. And for that, he gives us gifts, he gives us abilities. What happened to David? Where did the complacency set in? He took his gift as a place of establishment and he thought, I have arrived. He thought, I have arrived. There was an abundance of grace that was given and that is given to every believer. Amen? Do you believe that? There is an abundance of grace that is given to every believer. We are studying that in our Bible study, in ourselves. Ephesians 1, 7. The last part, the riches of his grace which he made abound, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. There is a riches of grace. It's like the manna. Israelites, how much ever they gathered, there was nothing left. And he who had little manna had more than enough. It talks about the sufficiency of God's grace in the life of a believer. And when we are ignorant of the sufficiency of this grace, we tend to become complacent. Grace is given so that we will expand our operation in the place of our calling. When God has called you, he gives you grace to walk that walk, to live that life of holiness. And then he equips you also to lead others, to equip others, to pray for others, to talk to others, to share his word with others, he gives all that to us. He lavishes it upon us. And when we think, that is the place that I need to sit and nurture and sit down, that is where the church becomes complacent. And the Lord shall deliver us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It stunts the growth. When we become complacent, not only does it stunt the growth of the believer, it stunts the growth of the body as well. Stunts the growth of the body as well. Brother Joseph, Brother Joseph, if I don't exercise, is that okay? What happens? The body loses its strength. Grace is given for us to exercise the gift and the call that God has placed upon our lives. Let us not become negligent of the grace of God upon our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Where does it lead to? Complacency leads to another trait called callousness. Callousness, it is defined as an insensitive or a cruel disregard for others. Disregard for others. Now, David, remember, in 1 Samuel 24, 
We are not going there. I will just share that portion to you so that you can note down and read it when you go back. When he has been given an, an opportunity to attack Saul, his soldiers tell him, listen, this is the time. God has given you into your hands. Attack him, David. Finish him off. One strike is enough from you. And David goes and cuts the edge of the garment of Saul and that troubles him. The Bible says, David's spirit was disturbed when he cut the edge of the garment of Saul. Now, such a man whose spirit was responsive, whose conscience was so alert about sin, has no qualms, no problems in sending for his elite soldier's wife. Uriah was not a common soldier. Remember, if, his, if, he's, if David is able to see his wife bathing, that means that David did not have binoculars. <laughs> the house was nearby, one. Two, that was the kind of placement of his troop around him. He was an elite soldier. And if you look back, trace back, she was also daughter of Elishama, who was also one of the elite soldiers of David the son of Ahithophel, one of his counselors. He had no qualms of taking Bathsheba. How callousness can affect the life of a saint. Carelessness leads to complacency, leads to callousness. And the Lord shall deliver us in Jesus' name. What does callousness lead to? It leads him to the way of Cain. Ah, way of Cain. Let's look at what David did. He murdered Uriah, but before he executes the death sentence, there is something that Uriah does. Look at verse 11 of 2 Samuel 11, and I will read the statement of Uriah. And Uriah said, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, and as my soul lives, I will not do this thing. You see the righteousness of Uriah over there? Because you are leaving, you are living, David, I will not sleep with my wife. And David is thinking, oh, but I just did. Does this guy think he is too righteous? Let's look at 1 John chapter 3. Verses 10 to 14. 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? 
because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. What is John saying over there? John is saying, listen brothers, if the world hates you, don't be surprised. If the world hates you, don't be surprised. But be alarmed if you are nurturing hatred against a brother. That means you are of a different father. That means that you do not belong to God, but you do belong to the... I don't need to mention that there. But that is the kind of warning that John is giving to the church of God. The world will hate us because the world does not know what is in us. But you and I know what is in the life of your fellow brother. He's called of your father. And if he shows you what is right, don't hate him for it. Amen? What is the danger of the chasm? We saw callousness, we saw complacency, we saw carelessness. But the chasm has a danger. When joy is drained away, David, if you look at 2 Samuel 12, verse 6, 2 Samuel 12, verse 6, when Nathan tells that parable, David says the law there. He says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. That is part of verse 5. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb. Right? Now that is in Exodus 22. Whoever steals a lamb shall restore fourfold. And because this man did not have pity, he will pay for the life of the lamb with his life itself. David knew the law very well. But he did not know that that law was pointing to his guilt. Danger of ignorance. Knowing the law, but lacking the conviction of sin. Now, it leads to another risk. Tell your neighbor, I will not take risks. I'm in a foreign land. Correct? We are all in foreign land, right? Yeah? How many of us drive anyhow in India? Helmet will be this side, one leg will be on the other side, on top of the handlebar and all that, and we will do all those things, right? But when we come here and when we drive, we don't take any risks. Correct? No risk. I don't want any risk, brother. In India, if you see a red light, it's okay, we'll push this side and go. Here, what happens? We get free meals. Right? We, do, we are so careful to not take risks in a foreign land. Are we not pilgrims and sojourners in a strange world? Why do we take risks then? Why do we take risks then? It risks an eternal chasm. Luke 16. Jesus talks of a parable there of the rich man who had all the riches. Now he's talking that parable 
He's talking that parable because the Pharisees were deriding him. Because Jesus said, you shall not love God, you cannot love God and mammon. And the Pharisees who loved wealth started deriding him. And therefore Jesus brings a parable over there saying that there was a rich man, right? And he had everything and there was this beggar Lazarus who was eating of the crumbs of his table. The rich man, Talabat, Biryani, everything he had. All his life he enjoyed, right? And when he died, Lazarus also died, but Lazarus came to Gulf, one side of Gulf, right? Rich man went to the other side of Gulf. And the rich man now said, it is hot over here, no AC in this Gulf. Please send Lazarus so that he may, I may, he may dip his finger and cool my tongue. So much is the challenge. So Abraham said, sorry, no flights from here to that side. Doesn't work. Then rich man said, okay, okay, okay. Then there is a possibility Lazarus can go and tell this to my brethren. There are five of them who are having biryani, jollof rice, everything, three full courses they are having all the time. Let them be warned. And that time Jesus says this, Abraham says, look at Luke 16, verse 31. If they don't listen to the Moses, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Mean to say, if we become so hard of hearing the word of God and taking it for granted, we will not be able to hear anything more. Conviction comes from the law itself. And if we think that we are above law, yes, God has given us a righteousness that is far above the law, but it demands a life that is lived above the law as well. And if we become hard of hearing the law, then we risk an eternal chasm. And the Lord shall deliver us in the name of Jesus. The Pharisees could not be persuaded towards repentance because they felt they were living a life that had everything and it was evident in what they had. But they did not know that God was searching their hearts and not their purses. What does God do? In this chasm is where God brings restoration. In the very place where there is a deep hole, God brings the wedge of conviction. Next slide, my sister. God initiates restoration through conviction of sin. When God brings conviction through his word, though it produces godly sorrow, it initiates restoration of joy. Amen? It initiates restoration of joy. What made the prodigal son go back to the father? He knew that I will not have the sorrow of the world. Even if I would cut a sorry figure before him, I will not have the sorrow of the world, but I will have his covering over me. God calls us to himself, and when he calls us to himself, he points us our sin so that we know we can have his forgiveness. 
God brings conviction of sin. His word exposes his innermost thoughts and attitudes. What is God's charge against David? Quickly, let's go to the next next slide. God's charge against David. God says, David, you have despised my word. You have despised my word. In In 2 Samuel 12, verse 9, you see, God brings a charge against David saying, David, you have despised my word. How did David despise his word? Let's look at Numbers 15, verse 30. Numbers 15, verse 30, but the person who does anything presumptuously, anything presumptuously, that word presumptuously doesn't mean under presumption or under assumption, it means under high-handedness. If anyone does anything under high-handedness, whether he is native-born or an expat, that one brings the reproach on the Lord and he shall be cut off from among his people, 31, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off, his guilt shall be upon him. He treated his authority. How many of us believe God gives us authority? We just sang that, no? God has given us authority. But the same God who gives us authority tells us, do not lord over others. You are saved to serve. Pastor Savas was saying it last week. You are saved to serve. You are to lead as an example of serving. Here, what was David doing? He was exercising high-handedness, saying, I can do whatever I want. There is no one above me. But God says, You are a king of my kingdom. Amen. Tell your neighbor, you are a king of God's kingdom. You have God's authority over you. Some of us don't believe that. It was a very feeble one. Once again, you have God's authority over you. Let's tell that again. You got scared hearing the word of God. Let's not be scared. God's word brings conviction. Only towards repentance, not for condemnation. Amen? What did David do? He said in verse 15 of 2 Samuel 11, set Uriah in the front of the battle and then withdraw so that he may die. Right? That is what he had said. But look at when Uriah dies, verse 25, his statement, what God sees as his intent. Look at verse 25 of 2 Samuel 11. He says to that messenger, the sword devours one. Is that there in your Bible? The sword devours one as well as the other. Which means to say, he's telling that messenger, Uriah's death was an accident. The sword could have killed someone else also. This is just by chance. He was sinning willfully and acting casually. And God saw that and his word exposed that. 
I despise God's word when I sin willfully and react casually. God shall deliver us in Jesus' name. The second part, what does God say? He says, you have despised my grace. You have despised my grace. Now, if you remember the parable that Nathan tells David, the poor man had a ewe lamb, a female lamb. Now, some of it is a simile of Bathsheba itself, but look at it in another sense. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. If someone is there, you can read. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Yes, he became poor for your sake so that you would become rich. Now that you lamb is a lamb that the poorest man will offer as a sacrifice. The priest had to offer in Leviticus 4 when you see, the priest had to offer a blemishless male lamb. But if someone could not afford it, you could offer a different kind. Right? In other words... The lesser value lamb in the sight of the law was precious in the sight of the poor man. The poor man in that parable had held that ewe lamb like his own daughter. It was very precious for him. It's a picture of Christ, how he treats us who are not of the commonwealth of Israel. He treats us as his own, precious. Now, when we have received the riches of God's grace, how can we treat the riches of God's grace on others with contempt? I can be ris risky of despising God's grace when I treat His grace upon others with contempt. And how do I do that? When I become ignorant of the riches of His grace towards me, when I'm able to appreciate His grace upon me, I'm able to appreciate the grace of God upon others. Amen? But when I start despising that, we also start looking down upon others. Ah, this brother, he's always like this. The third charge that God brings, you have despised me. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, he brings that charge. You have despised me. Now, when David sinned against Bathsheba, he, he broke four commandments, right? You shall not steal. How many of us remember at least four of the Ten Commandments? You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not covet. I, I'm, I'm not going to hear the rest of it. Just these four. Right? Now, was this a sin against God or a sin against the neighbor? Firstly. First against the neighbor 
But how does God bring that as a charge against him? You have despised me. Colossians 3, verse 5. Covetousness is idolatry. Coveting someone else's possession is like setting up an idol and worshipping that instead of God. Now we stray into this sometimes when we are in lack. We look at someone else and say, God, you have given him everything. I don't have anything. Hello, you have grace. And God takes us through seasons to show who he is in our lives. And when we do this, we are telling God, God, that thing is bigger for me than you. That is how David was guilty of sinning against God. Idolatry. David had committed idolatry there. And that is why David said, I have sinned against God himself. Amen. But God knows and David knows. And that is why we find encouragement in God's word through the psalm that David writes. Let's look at Psalm 51 verse 6. 51 verse 5. What does David say? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. How is joy challenged? Joy is challenged because when we have an... David is saying there, I have an inward nature to sin. God, I am born in sin. He's not talking about an adulterous relationship or something that his mother had. No, it did, it did not ever happen. What God was saying over there was, God, what David was saying there was, God, there is a tendency, there is a second nature in me to always sin. Now, there is a claim that the Stoics make. We are what we repeatedly do. Have you heard that? We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, therefore, is not an act, but a habit. True or false? True. In certain senses. If we want to excel intellectually, we have to make certain things as a habit. Right? If we want to excel in our workplaces, we have to make certain things a habit. Physically, intellectually, it is true. But morally, the Bible claims it the other way around. We are not. Because we sin, are we called sinners? Or, it is because we are sinners that we sin. There is an inward tendency of man towards sin. Right? That is why sometimes when we pray, we are thinking of the next meal. Nobody has had that? No challenges while praying? 100% concentrating? All of you here? Wow! God bless you all. No! There are thoughts that 
take us captive away. We all have that inward tendency to sin. David was telling that to God. God, I am born like this. But he doesn't stop there. Look at the next verse. Verse 6. But that is why Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. In Jeremiah 13, God reminds Israel. What does he say? Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to evil. How many of us remember Michael Jackson? Anyone remembers? Yes. He did a skin grafting. He changed his skin color. Did it change his sin color? No. I'm not accusing him. I'm as guilty as him in many places. No. That is not what I'm saying. I'm talking about the tendency when God says, if you cannot change your outward appearance, you cannot change your inward trait. You don't have the power to change your outward appearance itself. How can you change your inward trait? You are prone to do evil. Therefore, you cannot do good. Now, God doesn't leave us in that state of helplessness. That is why David says the next part. Psalm 51, verse 6. What does he say? Behold, you desire truth in the inward part and in the hidden part, you make me to know wisdom. Which means to say, in the very place that where we are challenged is where God brings capability. In the very place where we are challenged is where God sees capability. How does he do that? In the place of challenge, James 1.5. James says, listen, God does not tempt anyone. Okay? But when you are tempted, remember, you can go ask God for wisdom and when temptation comes look at verse 12 of James 1 blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him in the place of enticement what God looks for is endurance and God gives us wisdom to endure Whenever you are going through a challenge, whenever going, you are going through a temptation, ask God for wisdom. God, I am battling this temptation. I need your wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. And he will give you wisdom. And on the other side of temptation, on the other side of endurance, we saw in verse 12, there is a crown for you and I. Hallelujah. The crown of life that God gives for those who love him. In the very place of our core is where God wants to operate. And that is why he puts his spirit in us. He puts his spirit in us. God looks for endurance. God gives us equipment. God brings us, gives us equipment. Let's go to our last verse. Romans 8 verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give 
life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And verse 13, the last part of verse 13, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In the very place of our challenge, in the very place where our spirit becomes heedless, is where God gives us His Holy Spirit. He dwells in us so that we become alive to His Word and we are able to, through His power, mortify the desires of our flesh that can pull us down. You see, God, the beauty of God's grace, we are looking at how the Holy Spirit is deposited in the life of a believer. Yes? Aren't we studying that in, in Ephesians? Why does God put that pressure in us? Can He trust us? I was asking one, our brother the other day, will you trust a builder who is going to run away with your money and give him a down payment? No. You won't, right? Then, we who are prone to do error, how does God trust His riches to us? It is because it is His riches that equip us to live according to His will. And it is His Spirit that shapes us to His appearance. Amen? Let's rise up and thank God while I call on Pastor. Let us be on our feet. Jesus said in Luke chapter 15 verse 7, say, I said to you this, likewise... There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repent. The question I'm going to ask you after listening to today's message is that, are you really a believer? And if you are a believer, are you so insensitive to sin? Ignorance, they say, is not an excuse in the presence of the Lord. But God Almighty is ready to restore our joy. Only what you have to do is to repent, is to recognize your sin, is to know that area of your life that you know that you are going against God. And God is a merciful God. He's going to have mercy on us and forgive us. In Psalm 80 verse 7, Moses said, Restore us, O God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. God is ready to deliver you. But you need to recognize those areas of your life that you are going against the will of God. Let's begin to talk to God. You know those areas of your life yourself. Confess those areas before God right now. I don't want to be insensitive to these areas. These are the areas I'm seeing against you all the time. Have mercy, Lord. Talk to God. He's a merciful God. He's going to forgive you. He's going to restore that joy in you. He will give you a renewed spirit. He will build you up. He will bring you back. This is year of restoration. Confess your sin before him. He has the listening here. He's going to listen to you. He's going to forgive you. And he will bring you back to himself. And your joy will be full. Pray unto God. Appreciate God. Thank God for the message that you have heard today. Inform God. Tell God that God, let this message be firmly rooted in my heart. Continue to pray. Put everything before God. 
He will deliver you. He will save you. He's a merciful God. Father, we want to thank you and appreciate you, Lord, that our joy is a joy that has been restored. We thank you because your Holy Spirit is always following us, is always in our heart. Lord, what we are asking for is your mercy. Have mercy upon us as we have confessed our sins before you. We know those areas of our life that we have sinned against you, Lord. Father, have mercy, Lord. Forgive us. Restore the joy in our heart. Restore us unto you so that we'll be saved. Father, we pray all our prayer this afternoon that speedily you will answer us in the mighty name of Jesus. Whatever those things that we are doing that always take us back to our sin, it's only through your mercy and your Holy Spirit that will guide us not to go back to our vomit. Let your Holy Spirit continue to dwell in our heart in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, everlasting Father, for your servant that we have used for all this day. More anointing in the mighty name of Jesus. Bless him. Bless sister. Bless the children. Bless our big sister that are with them. Bless the entire family. Let them continue to see your hand in their life. We want to receive more from him, Lord. Let your presence never depart from him in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, you have used him. Use each and every one of us in your vineyard in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, everlasting Father, for today's service. We glorify your holy name. And as we depart here, Father, let your presence go with us in Jesus' name. Whatever be our heart desire, this week, as we are looking on to Victory Night and the special night vigil, let our testimony be full in the mighty name of Jesus. Father, we commit the rest of our programs for the year into your hand. Take control in Jesus' name and let your name be glorified in the mighty name of Jesus. Once again, as we depart, your presence shall go ahead of us in Jesus' name. And when we return next week, it shall be testimony in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, almighty God, for in Jesus' name we have prayed. Before we share the grace, we are exiting this way. Please fellowship under the canopy. And the newcomer, just outside this door, people are waiting to receive you. Let's close our eyes and share the grace together in fellowship. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forevermore. Amen. Surely, God's goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life, and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen.